0: welcome back to a brand new edition of problematic women i'm virginia allen and i'm krista Kimmer. and back in studio with us today is our good friend emma waters Emma served as a research associate in the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family here at the Heritage Foundation. Emma, thanks for being back. Of course. So excited to be here. <laughs> well, there's always, as always, I feel like we always start every show with there's so much going on in D.C. and the world. And that's very true. But there's some fun news that we have out of America on Sunday. I believe it was Sunday. The first ever active duty U.S. Air Force officer was crowned Miss Miss america madison marsh was named the 2024 miss america she recently graduated from the air force academy she's from Colorado. And she has one of those resumes that you read and you're like, oh my gosh, I I don't even know that I would be confident to carry on a conversation with this person just because they are so impressive. So she has all of these academic uh, awards that she's won and very, very impressive. She's also a black belt in Taekwondo. She's a graduate of Harvard Kennedy School of Government. I mean, just absolutely amazing. She did her first uh, flight. She started flying when she was 15 and did her first solo flight at the age of 16. I want to say it's impressive if you get your driver's license at the age of 16. This girl was flying planes solo at the age of 16. Very, very impressive. And she decided that she wanted to do pageants, which she got into it a little bit later in life. Was that ever something that you all thought about doing pageants? No, not
1: at all. (laughs) It's actually funny, the timing of this, because I, in December, was reached out, like, Miss Arlington, Virginia, reached out to me. Are you serious? Yeah. And they were like, you... I think someone submitted my email. I'm not even kidding. I think it was a joke. Um, but they were like, We're so we're so excited that you're interested, and I'm like, I don't know what this is. And I never followed through, so no, I have not
0: (laughs) thought about pageants. Mm, (laughs) I think you should. A A seed has been planted in Kristen's mind. Let's see if we can get you to do this. (laughs) (laughs) What would it take? What would it take for you to participate in pageants? Dude, a lot of free makeup. Like if I could get some like sponsorships
1: from Tarte and all of those a whole beauty, obviously. Yep. that would yep. be
0: you know. All right, well you maybe. heard it here first, folks. Send Kristen free makeup, and then she'll compete in pageants, <laughs> and we'll see how far a conservative woman can go in the pageant world. <laughs> Love it. All right, well, congratulations to Morgan. Um, she she did a very impressive interview that. Uh, I would encourage anyone look up her interview on Fox News before, uh, before that final uh, competition, before they announced who was being crowned Miss America. It is a great study in how to master an interview. She was very, very composed. And even if you didn't like necessarily the answers that she gave, she was in complete control of that interview the entire time, which I do think is a testament to some of the Positive aspects of pageantry that you learn how to think on your feet under fire so fast. So, anyway, congratulations to Madison. Very cool. But Kristen, we have a full show plan today. What do we have queued up? Up on today's problematic women, the March for Life
1: is tomorrow. And honestly, it has been a hard year for the pro-life movement. We discuss why and what might be needed to carry the fight for life forward. Plus, New Jersey has redefined infertility to include same sex and single persons. We pull back the layers on the hypocrisy. And America's not the only one having a major election this year. Taiwan's election sent a clear message to China about democracy. We explain why.
0: And as always, we'll be crowning our problematic woman of the week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong independent Women, please
1: consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to
0: it. The high on Friday in Washington, D.C. is supposed to be 33 degrees with a chance of snow, which means just one thing. It can only mean one thing in D.C. It is the day of the March for Life. So we have kind of a running joke in the office that just pick whatever the coldest day is in January and whatever that day is, that ultimately is going to be the day of the March for Life. It's it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's kind of true. <laughs> it's always such a cold day and this year is not – if we do end up having snow, this is not the first year we will have had snow on the day of the March for Life. But I'm always very impressed that the pro-life movement is such a hearty crew and people just put on the layers and the hats and the scarves and the gloves and there's still so many people that turn out to support life, to support women, the unborn And so on Friday, there will literally be tens of thousands of people in Washington, D.C. doing just that. We're going to be there running around, talking to marchers, asking them why they're there. If you're there, look for us. We'll be running around. We're going to be talking to some of the speakers. We're very, very excited. And I think, you know, looking at where we stand in the pro-life movement right now, this is the second March for Life that we'll be having since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And just to give you a little bit of sense of the background of the March for Life, it was started out of Roe v. Wade, that after in um, 1973 when Roe v. Wade was handed down, then you had the March for Life of pro-life Americans saying, no, 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 we stand for life and we will keep marching until Roe v. Wade was overturned. So I think some people are kind of asking that question still of, okay, why are we still marching in a post-Roe America? I mean, the simple answer is because babies are still being aborted and not, not just a handful, but there's still thousands of babies losing their lives every single year to abortion. And so that's why we continue to March for Life and to talk about the need for uh, not only pro-life laws, but there to be a culture of life across America. But we do have to look at the situation really, really honestly, because what we have seen is when Roe v. Wade was overturned, this sent... The option of do you want to move forward um, and move towards life or away from life, away from protecting life in your own state? And voters got to make that decision. They're getting to make the decisions in their states, which we want states to have the authority to make decisions on this issue. But what we've seen is that so many states are um, really adopting very pro-abortion laws and legislation and rejecting pro-life Uh, ballot measures. So there have been, I think about 10, Emma, correct me if I'm wrong, about 10 pro-life ballot measures since Roe v. Wade was overturned in states across the country, many of them very conservative states. Every single one of those measures has failed. Every pro-life ballot measure has failed. And at the same time, every pro-abortion ballot measure has succeeded. So this draws us to the question when you have red states like kansas montana and kentucky where pro-life efforts are failing where americans are being asked hey do you want to protect life and they're essentially saying no what's happening what's going wrong but most common talking point we hear is well the pro-abortion side has way more money they've outspent us and I, i think initially i was like okay yeah i i can see that for the first couple but I'm like, wait a second. No, no, no. There's, there's more going on here. When you have consistently every single pro-life measure failing, we're missing something. And I think everyone in this room would say we're a part of the pro-life movement. We've all been to the Marches for Life. We've reported on the issue. I know many of us have volunteered at pro-life centers uh, and so I think we just kind of have to lay everything on the table. So that's what we're going to take the next few minutes to do, to talk about why we are having so much trouble, quite frankly, just being really honest, at, as a pro-life movement about actually moving the ball forward and protecting life. What are we missing is the big question.
2: Yeah, this is such a good question. So there was an article published by Carmel Richardson in October or November of last year after the Ohio abortion ballot just – significantly bombed, to say the least, Um, (laughs) a lot of the pro-life movement's hopes um, when it came to how they would vote. And she made the argument that it's not that Republicans are going too far. It's that they're not going far enough when it comes to their pro-life rhetoric and when it comes to the laws that they're willing to advocate for. So she cited Tim Scott and others who had endorsed a 15-week abortion ban saying that if you truly believe that life begins at conception and that all life is worthy of protection, then actually advocating for these weaker uh, uh, laws protecting babies from abortion actually undermines your very point. So it sends the message to voters that you're serious, but you're not that serious. Mm -hmm. And so it it then ends up creating this dynamic of like, well, I mean, if Republicans are advocating for 15 weeks, then what's the difference between 20 weeks or 25 weeks? I mean, I personally might not get an abortion, as voters may say, but it doesn't seem like a big deal to have it there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she really advocated for um, Republicans. Yeah, really putting their messaging and their money where their mouth is on mm-hmm. this issue, and really saying like, no, we really, really value mothers, we really value children, and we're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. Um, and I think there's there's a ton of disagreement on this, um, and there are others who say, on the other hand, right, that we actually just need to be solely focusing on mothers and children and not pushing laws that are clearly turning tons of voters away. Um, but I don't know. I'm I'm pretty uh, compelled by Carmel's point here mm. that I think a lot of people are just waiting to see if. Pro-lifers really mean it, and if they're really willing to sacrifice. Um, and when it comes to some of these red states, I I do think the financial aspect is something that cannot be overlooked. Sure. These are not only Republican states, but these are also states with pretty high levels of poverty, even among conservatives. And I think that the sad reality is that for a lot of people, while again, they may hope they're never in a position to get an abortion, that in some people's minds, there's the thought of, I don't know, if my daughter were to get pregnant in high school unexpectedly, do I really want no options available for me? And that's a really heartbreaking scenario to imagine. And I imagine that's not one that even they themselves want to find find themselves in. Um, but I wonder how much that is playing into this, that people still want the idea of an option, Mm -hmm. which goes back to tons of support for mothers and babies might help Mm -hmm. offset some of these concerns of uh, feeling like you have no other options before you and that it's going to destroy your life or your child's life, even if that's the wrong approach to this. I I just wonder how much that's actually playing into voters' thoughts on this.
1: Mm -hmm. I, I think the one thing that I really, really pulled from that too that continues to be a problem is the um, the choice aspect, right? Like you're saying people are putting themselves in those positions and trying to be empathetic. And I think that conservative policies are – previously and and still now kind of lack the quote-unquote empathy piece Mm -hmm. of this, not for the baby necessarily, but for the mother. I think that messaging has not fully been developed. However, I do think things are getting better. And actually, just this week on the Hill, they're introducing two bills that are focused on um, supporting mothers. It's uh, HR 6918, which is supporting Parents and uh, Parenting Women and Families Act. So it's focusing on providing necessary support for those women, whether they're in a family um, or, you know, single. Um, and then they have another one that's focused specifically on ensuring that pregnant students are mm-hmm. given resources um, or given the awareness and understanding of what resources are already available to them. These uh, higher institutions have so much money that is pouring in for, you know, DEI and all this other, you know, random stuff. But there's so much out there that they're not necessarily utilizing for pregnant women. So I think to your point, there's an ignorance on both sides. It's, It's Americans not... You know, necessarily understanding the whole picture of what an abortion is, but also lawmakers not necessarily targeting what the left continues to argue, which is, you know, when it comes to conservatives, they don't support um, what they don't support the baby after it's born. That's like their common argument. And I think a lot of representatives are kind of proving that they are now thinking mm-hmm. that way, which mm-hmm. is awesome.
0: Well, and I think we have seen so many pro-life centers at a very localized level do a really good job of highlighting how in our own community we are supporting women, we we provide continuing resources after the baby is born, but there there has there's been a push and I want to acknowledge like for the pro-life movement, they are working hard. The pro-life movement is working very very hard to create that message, um, and not only to create a message, but to follow through, to to put actions behind words of we 100% support women, support the baby, but more is needed. And it's something that I think, Emma, like you were saying, like, it's time to go into high gear. And I was very fascinated by a Newsweek piece. It was an op-ed written by um, Charles Camassi. And he puts the argument forth that the focus right now for the pro-life movement really has to be On the woman. And I think that education piece, Kristen, that you talked about is huge. One, to let women know, okay, these are the resources that are available to you. You really aren't alone. Removing red tape from those resources, I think, is a big thing because logistics is real. I mean, you think of so many women who get pregnant and it's not a planned pregnancy. They don't have the finances. They could be working two jobs. Maybe they already have a child. You can't have a bunch of hoops for them to have to jump through in order for them to access resources. You need to streamline it. So that's where that legislation side becomes so important, where how can we make uh, resources really direct and simple and um, and make sure that we're putting women first and their needs first and empowering them to be able to make a choice for life. And Senator Rubio has had some really interesting legislation, Emma, that he's introduced yes.
2: on this. So he um, actually, Daily Signal here at Heritage, um, was able to preview a memo that he'll be releasing this week. Um, And so he makes the argument that there's a threefold approach to how Republicans should be approaching the pro-life issue. And so number one, we need to develop a compassionate pro-family agenda. So like Kristen was mentioning, this means policies um, that are geared towards all aspects of family life and supporting family life, encouraging family life and making it easier to raise children, be it an unplanned pregnancy or with children that you already have. Um, And actually, on this point, Tim Carney has a book coming out on marriage in just a couple of weeks that really hits on this idea incredibly well. So he argues that part of the reason that people aren't having the number of children they used to, it's not financial necessarily. It's not because they're just really selfish. And I think this kind of maps on maybe and perhaps to like the pro-life movement. But he argues that the primary reason is actually because uh, our culture is just so unfriendly to children, that hmm. it's not normal mm-hmm. to have children, to encourage children, that we don't have walkable cities, that our our jobs aren't set up in such a way that it encourages and enables women to have the flexibility they need, and that we really need to focus on making all aspects of our society just super kid-friendly. And so for the pro-life movement, right, it's making um, our society pregnancy-friendly and postpartum-friendly. And so um, there's a lot that can be done there. There's a lot that is being done there. But I think that that's something in developing a compassionate pro-family agenda that conservatives, frankly, have the best track record to continue promoting. Um, The second one he suggested was to highlight democratic extremism, Um, so highlight how— they support abortion through all three trimesters um, and beyond, highlight some of the crass and just really uncaring approaches that they have, encouraging women to get an abortion. Um, I will never forget Stacey Abrams in Georgia saying... Oh, inflation is bad. You can't uh, get groceries for your family. Have an abortion. That will help free up some money. And like, can you imagine? Like, I shocking to me. And then the third one is tell the truth about the unborn and the brutality of abortion. Um, So really speak what is true when it Mm -hmm. comes to unborn life, when it comes to life beginning at conception, the value and dignity and inherent worth of every child, whatever stage they are, right, whether it's an in vitro fertilization at the embryonic stage of creation or whether it's growing in a woman, all life um, deserves and requires that kind of protection and just really continue hitting that home in such a way that women don't feel attacked,
0: Americans don't feel attacked, right, but they feel so loved
2: and encouraged in that. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I think so much does come back to understanding that question and answering that question of when does life begin. And I, I would love to see in schools... Um, Kids given and, you know, in public schools, you don't know the answers um, <laughs> as far as what teachers would be teaching. But that's such a foundational question for everyone to wrestle with is when does life Begin and, but it's not even necessarily
2: complicated because all biologists will say that life begins at conception. Yeah. So it's just like teach biology as biologists without agenda, right? And so, like again, you don't, you can say I don't believe that we should protect life at this stage, but yeah. you have to at least recognize that life literally has begun. It's growing. There, there is something happening here. Yeah, and then just being honest that you're saying you actually just don't value life at that stage, mm-hmm. and that's Ooh. the distinction that needs to be made. And mm.
1: No. Oh, that just like struck me, Emma. You need to tweet that, do whatever with that. But <laughs> the the one thing I've been reading, too, is for the left, it's the solution is abortion. When mm-hmm. you get pregnant, it is not to carry that child. It is to get an abortion. And that goes right back to your point of highlighting the extremism. No other in no other species is that normal. Speaking as someone who has taken evolutionary biology, cellular biology, all of the biologies and have... Also worked, you know, on space-related issues. The moment that something is conceived, it is carried full term. No other species does this. And what is in natural should not be, you know, something that we regulate and create policies around. But, I mean, it's just the left, right? Like, there's hypocrisy everywhere. They'll say a clump of cells on uh, Mars is life, but not when it's at home in a woman's womb. So...
0: Did you guys see the hilarious
1: tweet about the woman who attacked the
2: uh, like in construction building of a Planned Parenthood. And so they were like, oh, this is committing arson on a building. And everyone was like, well, it's under construction. So really, it's just a clump of bricks. So
1: should she be held Ooh. accountable? Wow. And it was hilarious. Wow. Well played. Well <laughs> life movement. Well played. <laughs> we need more of that, though. We need more of the this is why you're wrong. Like this <laughs> is. Yeah.
0: Like just just pointing it out. Right. Just pointing yeah. out the, the hypocrisy. Really? Well, OK. So in summary what What can the pro-life movement do better? It's moving forward of um how do we how do we pass laws that put women first, really focusing on letting women know about the resources that are available to them when they're pregnant um, and then furthering culturally that culture of life of encouraging like really again, always asking that question, when does life begin making people think about that and wrestle with it and do research to find out truly what biology says. Those are huge aspects. And so glad to see we have folks like Senator Marco Rubio, who is taking a very practical approach to this on the legislative side. And then I think there's a part that we all, as members of the pro-life movement, can take. And, you know, for – I think – you know, we hold both intention, right, of like loving the baby really well and the mom, but the focus maybe right now really does solely need to be on, not solely, but really highlighting that focus so much of the, of the mom and caring for her.
2: And I don't know what policies would necessarily correspond to what I'm about to say, but okay. I think something that we cannot overlook is the role of the father. Yes. Mm. Time and time again, the primary decision maker for a woman when it comes to getting an abortion, when it comes to how long she breastfeeds, when it comes to major decisions she makes for the well-being of her child is if her partner is supportive or not. So we've seen horrifying examples of this where men are actually encouraging their wives or their girlfriends to get an abortion. And we've also seen really beautiful examples where the ongoing support and encouragement and celebration from husbands or or boyfriends like really encourages them to choose life. And it's that kind of support from the person closest to you, and frankly for women, the person whose opinion you most likely care about the most, that really is the game changer. So I think in all of this too, I, I think it is a huge mistake if we only talk about women and children. Because we're missing out on Mm -hmm. calling men to this greater authority, to this greater presence, to really, um, I mean, frankly, like make a difference here. And I think if you had husbands and boyfriends who were just consistently and staunchly in support of their wives, that this would really change the playing field for the pro-life movement. And we need more men involved in this, not less. Um, speaking from experience, um, my husband and I have a daughter. And a couple of months ago, I thought I might be pregnant again. And I was like, oh, no, Like I wasn't ready to be pregnant this soon. And I was just like having I was having a moment. We would have been very excited, but I was just feeling incredibly overwhelmed. Yep. And then we weren't pregnant. So I told my husband, I was like, OK, false alarm. We aren't pregnant. And he just looked at me and he was like, man, I would have been so excited if you were Aww. pregnant. And he was like, OK, later. And he just like gave me a hug. And I was like. That was the best thing that anyone could have told you in that moment because it just showed you that, like, even if it was totally unplanned and totally a surprise and would have been pure chaos, he was so excited and so supportive for Mm. whatever happened, um, including life, right? That it wasn't just my burden or my responsibility, but it was something that he truly shared with me and delighted in with me. Um, And like that, just imagine the minute America really taking that position. And I think that would just radically change how we approach this issue in America. Yes,
0: Wow. I love that. Go your husband. (laughs) Right? I know. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. Wow. All right. Well, stay with us. Up next, we are going to talk about some uh, interesting policy changes coming out of New Jersey related to redefining infertility. But first, if you are someone... But first, if you are someone you know works in higher education, you need to listen up. We have a very important announcement for you all. So we all know that the academic environment is particularly challenging right now, especially for faculty who research, publish, teach, or develop programs in areas that explore areas like economic freedom, the dignity of person, human flourishing constitutional governance, national sovereignty, and other issues that relate specifically to freedom and opportunity to traditional American values, issues that we talk about right here on this show. And the funding opportunities for those kinds of projects, for that kind of research, can be very, very scarce in the field of academia. And that's why the Heritage Foundation has established the Freedom and Opportunity Academic Prizes to recognize and provide financial awards to faculty in higher education institutions. So you can apply to receive Um, A grant, essentially a financial award of $15,000 in recognition of past accomplishments, of important work that you or someone you know is currently doing for future projects as well. The deadline to apply is February 1st, and you can visit www.heritage.org slash innovation prize. Again, that's heritage.org slash innovation prize to find the application, to find more information. Again, that deadline is February 1st. So make sure you check out, if you work in the field of academia, heritage.org slash innovation prize. New Jersey has expanded insurance care for infertility and while doing so has also redefined infertility to include same-sex and single persons. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy says that for those who struggle with infertility and for same-sex couples, the possibility of starting a family is deeply impacted by the availability and access of infertility care and other medical services that without coverage can be extremely costly. Today's bill will create new opportunities for families across New Jersey to take on one of the hardest and most rewarding jobs there is, parenthood. Okay, so Emma, I, I know that you've been doing some research on this infertility care. It's a good thing, right? But how New Jersey is doing Justifying giving infertility resources to men is another question and a big question because the male body obviously was never intended to carry or bring forth a child into the world. And yet now in the state of New Jersey, men who either identify as women or who are in a same-sex relationship, they can qualify for infertility resources, right?
2: Yes. And it goes even further than this. So the state of New Jersey is relying on recent guidelines from the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which states that infertility is not just limited to a man and a woman who are unable to conceive after six months or a year, depending on their age. And that's a very standard definition. So Um, Yeah, So they're expanding it further, though, and they're saying that if you're in need of donor egg or sperm or you're in need of some sort of assistance beyond your body, um, then you are also infertile. So what that means, and it's very like couched language, but what this means is that persons in same-sex relationships, so two women and two men who cannot naturally um, procreate, whether they're perfectly fertile or not, um, or single persons, single women or single men, now qualify as infertile based on this new definition, but their individual bodies can be perfectly healthy. So two men in a same-sex relationship, if they were to get with two women, could easily conceive children by this definition. But because it's two men in a relationship, they're considered infertile. And then what this bill does is based on this redefinition of infertility to include one's sexual orientation or sexual preference or relationship status for single persons, they now qualify for the state's um, infertility services. And so when it goes into detail um, about what these infertility treatments are, it includes things like in vitro fertilization. It includes um, purchasing egg and sperm um, from an egg or sperm donor bank, Um, and then also covering the the cost of implantation, including into a surrogate. So it doesn't pay for a surrogate, but it does cover the cost of placing the embryo into a surrogate. And thinking that in future fertilization and many of these reproductive technologies cost about fifteen dollars to $30,000 for a single round that may or may not be successful. Um, one, this is a huge dent in the health insurance bucket. They're going to be covering a ton, but it then also encourages more people and enables more people um, who are in same-sex relationships or single to be able to afford a surrogate or afford some of these other... um unethical approaches to having children. Um, And and so the bill is incredibly careful, though. Um, And what I think is hilarious about it is it's clearly able to define a woman um, throughout the bill where it's like a woman who's unable to do this, a woman who's unable to do that. She (laughs) qualifies. But then it gets to the very end of their definition of infertility and then it says, it changes from a female, a male, a female, a male, and says a person who is (laughs) unable to carry a pregnancy to live birth. And you're like, well, a person could be a man or a woman. So a (laughs) man who's unable to carry a pregnancy because men don't have that biological ability, qualify for infertility coverage based on this, not because they themselves are infertile or that anything is wrong with their body, but because their body won't carry a child, they now get tons of support from the state. Um, And yeah, so it's just like incredibly bizarre, to say the least, but really just reflects um, the infusion of gender ideology and the sort of corruption of science into
0: some of the most fundamental laws that we have. Are there other states that are considering passing this or is New Jersey just off doing its own thing?
2: Yeah, so unfortunately there are a number of states. So in 2021, Illinois was actually the first state to successfully pass this redefinition of, of infertility. <laughs> um Advocated by For Men Having Babies, a large organization that supports men having babies through surrogacy and IVF. That's and a real other organization. Century, and a very, very popular one. Wow. Oh, my god! They have international conferences, one meeting in Berlin not far from now. And again, it's explicitly focused on how can men have children by whatever technological means possible, which means children who are being raised apart from their biological mother from whatever egg they're using and children who are being raised apart from a relational mother and not wow. having the nurture and care of a mother. And these sort of laws um, literally place that within someone's legal rights to do, to create motherless children. And that's one of the huge problems with it. But then we also have California, Wisconsin, and New York that are all three considering bills along these same lines to redefine infertility and provide tons of IVF services Um, and What's so interesting, though, is California's bill was actually stalled for two years mm. because it is so expensive for health insurance companies mm. that the health insurance companies were like, absolutely not. We know this <laughs> is going to like bankrupt us and not only raise premiums for everyone else, yeah. but also just cause, again, so much more work for the companies that they've delayed it. Um, but frankly, it's, it's only a matter of time because the economic argument is not your strongest argument. It should be the moral. Um, and then we even have had federal bills proposed by Cory Booker and others – that would also redefine infertility and even potentially push toward providing some sort of coverage for surrogacy itself. Um, which would be still politically infeasible. um, But we're moving that direction, which would just be absolutely horrible when it comes to the commodification of children and the
1: exploitation of women. Mm. How do we destroy the healthcare system as we know it,
0: while also the lives of thousands of children? (laughs) (laughs) Look at New Jersey. (laughs) Well, and I think this goes right back, Emma, to what you said earlier in relation to men and restoring the family, because we can talk about bills being passed. Past and things like that. And of course, there are measures legislatively that can be done to to block some of this. But at the end of the day, the root of the problem is the fact that there's not a value for the healthy family, for whole families, having a mom and a dad that love each other in one home, raising kids. And the sooner that, that we can begin again as a society to truly celebrate that, to create cultures and spaces and workspaces and communities that are not only tolerating that but actually excited about it these problems automatically begin to disappear
2: yeah yeah, and I think like the huge underlying thing that Katie Faust points out so brilliantly is that these laws are specifically garnered to fulfilling the desires of adults, mm. um, even the unnatural desires of adults that are contrary to the well-being of children mm-hmm. and that there are no advocates for the child in this picture. Of ultimately, if it was just like adult preference or desire, right, it would still be wrong. But then you think about the child who's created who won't be raised with a mother or a father in the home, which we know is so essential to the child's well-being um, and development on a lot of levels. Um, but also that like they're being lied to in effect about the nature of their creation. Um, yeah. So I, I think just like keeping in mind like the child in again, the child when it comes to the for life movement, the child when it comes to these bills is just so overlooked by so many policymakers in a way that really does a disservice um, to our nation. Because ultimately, right, a generation or two from now, you're going to have children growing up being like, wait why didn't you advocate for Mm -hmm. me? And this is what's so fascinating with China right now, which you guys may have talked about on the show, where so many women in China don't want to have babies and their birth rate is totally Mm -hmm. collapsing. And so there's this great Wall Street Journal article talking about it where multiple women were sharing about um, how China forced them to get an abortion, um, like under the one-child policy, or how they were constantly told, don't have kids, don't have kids, don't have kids, or they saw siblings being aborted. Mm -hmm. And so now they've come of age, and now China's like, oh, wait, have kids. We support this. And so many of the women are like, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Like, you had no respect for me. You had no respect for the life of the unborn. Mm-hmm. And now you want me to have kids? I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And they're, like, directly citing that. And, like, again, if you continue passing laws that show you have no respect for um, for women and for the unborn child, it's going to come back and bite you and not in a way
0: that's good for the nation overall. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that's an issue that uh, is one that our next president is going to have to deal with, right? He's going to have to address this moment, this cultural moment in history where we're having conversations that we've never really had before around, um, you know, how do we move, like we've talked about, how do we move forward as a pro-life movement? How do we protect life? How do we bring back value to the family? These are questions that many of the candidates, DeSantis, Trump, Nikki Haley, Ramaswamy have had to weigh in on during debates. Um, and now, of course, that that pool has narrowed of presidential candidates where we just have um, Trump and uh, Haley and DeSantis and this week we had we had some big news, Kristen. Oh, we had on, some major news on
1: the election out front. of the great state of Iowa. <laughs> what happened in Iowa? <laughs> With a wind chill of like thousand, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, so yeah, uh, we had our Iowa caucus this this week, and um, that was on Monday. Trump won by a landslide, and actually, um, the Associated Press reported in. Uh, pretty much every major yeah, news outlet reported Trump the winner in only 31 minutes, exactly 31 minutes, which is kind of insane That's from the time that the caucus began. Um, just again, factoring in all of the crazy, um, I mean, a caucus itself is insane as it is getting that many people, you know, in a room and um, those different districts. But. Also, with the wind chill, it's just kind of insane that they were able to to do that. So I know.
0: Iowans are hardy. Yeah. Go guys. Respect. <laughs> respect. Respect. Let's see you, New Hampshire. <laughs> um, hey, they'll turn up.
1: They'll turn up. Right. My, my state's on it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah, so Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took second place, uh, earning about 21 percent of the vote. And then former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley took third with 19 percent of the vote. Um... Ramaswamy came in fourth, and Monday night, shortly after the results were in, he announced the end of his campaign and went on to endorse Trump. Um, like we kind of just said, New Hampshire primaries are on Tuesday, mm-hmm. so uh, we'll see what happens yeah, with night. that one. that's a, Yeah, Virginia's very invested. I think she might tailgate it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know you work in politics when? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but America's elections weren't the only ones making headlines this week. Taiwan, America's principal ally in the Indo-Pacific, held its closely watched presidential election this past Saturday, where Lai, Lai Ching-te received 5.5 million votes. Just to put that in perspective, that's slightly larger than the population of Nikki Haley, South Carolina. So, wow. Hmm. Wow. very different type of election because yeah. you know a lot smaller but still democratic process is a democratic process. Exactly. Uh, so, the small islands nation or the small island nation's 30 year old democracy has withstood repeated attempts from its communist neighbor to infringe on its people's freedoms and i think a lot of people i mean obviously it's a smaller smaller island not as big as a lot of other countries but a lot of people are wondering how were they able to you know hold this election they had results the night that it was held so the Mm -hmm. election was held during the day on saturday and then they declared um who won that same night and um a lot of people are really focused on the process, actually, and that's something that a lot of Americans were focused on after the twenty 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 election. Sure, um, and what we saw first of all is Taiwan required IDs um, and a notice that they Think were that. right. <laughs> wow, what <laughs> um, they required IDs and a notice that they were supposed to be at that polling facility. So a lot of times you are sent something in the mail. Honestly. I usually vote early, (laughs) which um, so I've never been to my poll. Actually, last year I was at my polling site. But um, that is one of the criteria. Um, They don't have early voting or absentee voting. um, And actually what happens is the person voting casts their ballot. It's paper. And then vote counters are in a room publicly and they recite the voting results to another who records and tallies the vote for a particular candidate. um, The public can attend and watch the voting counts. Um, there's a lot going on. And like I said, this all led to same day results, which is huge. Mm-hmm. We used to have this, I think. Um, I mean, I haven't been really alive and paying attention <laughs> to one that has had this. <laughs> um, but that that was huge. Um, and the, the reason for all of this, the reason for these measures um, largely have to do with the fact that there is election interference, um, whether we like to admit it or not. You're not a tinfoil hat person by saying that. Um, and for Taiwan in particular, they have to be very careful that, you know, China does not interfere with their elections yep. because they've already pretty much said they're not a free nation. But yeah. um, did you guys pay attention to the, the Taiwan election or was that just me?
0: Well, so I I read. Up on it after the weekend, I was away. I made a great life choice and did like an unplugged solo kind of retreat oh, weekend. Good. So, so smart. it was it was great. Highly recommend. So I wasn't following it on Saturday, but um, spent a while reading up on it when I got home later. And it was encouraging to see the commitment and the boldness by their new president to say we we are a democratic nation we will stand against china's threats and that takes a lot of courage that as a newly elected president with this massive communist country on your doorstep of china you're you're willing to say no we're not we're not going to bow to china and we will continue to carry on our tradition of democracy and freedom and protect our people's freedoms no matter what. And that I found very, very encouraging. And you could tell the atmosphere in Taiwan was really, really vibrant, that the people are very excited by this new leader. Yeah. I mean, we're all
2: the way here in the United States, and I still feel nervous for Taiwan. Yeah, I'm like, oh, my goodness, what have we done?
1: <laughs> I fully support it. But wow, that yeah. amount of courage. Like, it's it's courageous. Well, yeah. But you know what's crazy, Emma? The results of all of this, you know, reporters obviously look to Biden because Taiwan is kind of— the litmus test, um, people call it for how supportive the United States is of countries that close to China, since it has been supported by former speakers. I mean, even Nancy Pelosi went there, like, that's insane. Um, and Biden, <laughs> his response on Sunday, shortly after, um, to the, you know, reporter pool was, we do not support independence. He, he just, Flat out he said, said that. that. Yep, yeah. The Hill, ABC, um, all of them reported on this, and wow. I think that is insane. <laughs> it's
0: frightening. It's very, very frightening. I'm
1: shocked, right? Yeah. Yes. He, he like mumbled it, but he said it. It was
0: insane. It was disheartening. Oh my gosh. And it just, you know, that's
1: so humiliating. It.
0: Yeah. Do you think he fully understood what he was saying? Like I the, hope the not. weight of it. Um,
2: well, whether he meant to say it or not, it's what was on his mind. Yeah, that's actually true. That's but really
0: frightening.
1: It just kind of further demonstrates, you know, like we're going to fight for all these radical
0: radical things, but when it comes to the important what's, things, what's really important, standing up against what many argue is our greatest threat today and that's China.
2: Yeah. yeah. Without Taiwan, the United States ceases to function with so many of the goods that, like you were saying, we rely on. Like, yeah. Even just like for like pure like self-preservation. Oh, yeah. There's a very powerful argument to be made that like this is something we, yeah, this is something we have to be invested in.
1: Yeah. Do you like using your car, your phone, your TV, like <laughs> any smart device at all? Well, 60% of the, the semiconductors are wow. in Taiwan. So.
2: Which is oh, a problem. Wow. So reshore our manufacturing. Um, But that's a discussion for another yeah. day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bring it back home. Yeah. Wow. Well, congrats to Taiwan. And we are fully rooting for you to to stay a safe, democratic nation. Good job, guys, standing up for freedom. But we will be back in just a moment to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. We get it. With big media bias, it's hard to find accurate, honest news. That's why we put together the Morning Bell newsletter, a compilation of the top stories and conservative commentary. To subscribe, just head to dailysignal.com slash subscription, or visit dailysignal.com and click on the connect button at the top of the page.
1: Now, it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Carrie Williams. Carrie is a boxer and USA Olympic Level 4 female boxing coach. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but that's high. (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: high. It's impressive. (laughs) Well, and she has been sounding the alarm over new USA boxing rules that allow men to compete against women. That's right. (laughs) On January 1st. I can't even believe I'm saying this. Yeah, I know.
1: On January 1st, USA boxing officially changed its rules to allow men who meet certain hormone levels and have had gender-altering, air quotes, surgery to compete against women. Again, just an absolutely insane. Yeah, contact sport, men competing against women. Like hitting women. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But as Carrie points out, this does not address the fact that men have larger hearts, for example. They're stronger and have greater bone density and greater lung capacity. I mean, forget that they also have just stronger muscles in general. Yeah. Like anything taller. Well, yeah. Even if, even if they're
2: on testosterone blockers, right, they still have a much higher level of testosterone than the natural woman will ever have. Mm-hmm. So even weakened state, there's still twice as much testosterone in men than women. Like it's not even like a close comparison. Right. Right. Even with these invasive technologies trying to undermine it, it's
1: yeah, it's crazy. Like I wouldn't want to fight some a man with his arm tied behind his back. Like it doesn't. Really? I'm just not
0: fighting him. <laughs> like no, not, not interesting. Happening. Well, I, I actually had the chance to speak with Carrie on the Daily Signal podcast, and she she told a story of having sparred just to warm up, having sparred with a man, and he actually like cracked one of her ribs, and he wasn't trying. To do damage or actually fight her he was just kind of there sparring trying to warm her up and i mean so we know what the results of this will be very very devastating and i asked carrie during my podcast interview with her on the daily signal that i uh, came out wednesday morning so give it a listen but i asked her what are other female boxers saying about this and this is what she told me
3: oh gosh uh it's, it's, you know, and the thing is, it's not just in boxing, it's in wrestling and uh, yeah. MMA, you know, other combat sports, uh, jiu-jitsu. Um, okay. I'm getting stories told to me from young girls that are talking about, you know, they got their nose broke and just in training with um, with boys or men. Uh, but yeah, the, the women in the boxing community, I don't know one of them personally that has said, yeah, this is a great idea. Uh, hmm. They are extremely upset about it. I do understand that, you know, we're in Olympic Games in 2024. So a lot of our women have worked really hard for a lot of years to get where they're at. Now, for them to step up and speak out against USA Boxing, it puts their Olympic dreams in jeopardy. So I think a lot of them are very nervous to really kind of step up and speak out um, and ruffle any feathers because of where they're at um, and and the thing is in 2024, I don't believe there will be any transgenders boxing at the Olympics at least in in the USA because this rule is you know uh, kind of new but you know for the future it's you know and it can do some people say oh there's not that many trans you know what are you worried about? there could be one that's all it takes to do damage. That's all it takes to kill a woman. Um, and that's all it takes for it to grow steadily. And then there are more and there are more and there are more. Um, so what, just because there's one, it's okay. I don't understand that logic at all. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, I'm extremely scared for the safety of our girls and our women in
0: boxing. So I was really impressed by what Carrie said in our conversation because she recognized that while not all women are comfortable speaking out, especially women who are maybe competing at at high levels right now in boxing, she's like, I'm completely comfortable. I don't care about getting canceled. I'm going to speak the truth on this issue. And she's challenging female boxers that if there are situations where they've been told you're going to compete against a man, for them just to say, absolutely not, I won't do mm-hmm. it. And it's like, yeah, we actually we really need that kind of courage. Um, and, you know, it, it's a hard – it's an insanely hard position to be in because especially at that uh, elite level where you're trying to get to the Olympics, you've dedicated your life to this. Uh, and at the same time, we're talking about the health and the safety of, of women uh, and in something like boxing where you can literally, as Carrie said – you could get killed by a man in the ring if they hit you the wrong way. Um, this is a life or death issue.
1: Well, once again, though, the hypocrisy of the left, they care so much about the women's health when it comes to, you know, <laughs> the pro-life movement. They they hate that. But then they're totally fine sending them in a ring where they could, you know, yeah. be concussed. Uh, if you knock someone out in a certain spot, you can kill them, mm-hmm. like break things. It doesn't matter. It's absolutely insane. Yeah, but thank you, Carrie, for
0: for speaking out. Yeah, for being a bold voice, and she has a great following. Um, She has a brand, a fight um, brand for women called Tussle with gloves specifically fitted for women's hands. And so, check out her stuff. She's very cool. Follow her on Instagram, Carrie Williams. There's only um, one R C A R Y Williams. All right. Well, with that, that's going to do it for today's edition of Problematic Women. Emma, first, thank you for being with us today. So thank you fun. You so much. I love it every time. It's <laughs> a great conversation. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservative women, we really need your support in the podcast world. So hit the subscribe button and also take a minute, leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you like to listen to the show. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Google Play. We're across all the platforms. We love hearing from you guys. Send us your recommendations for Problematic Women, too. We love that. We love that. Please.
1: But anyway, have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.
0: It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram.
1: We produce problematic women and remembrance of our dear friend and former co host, Bree Peyton.